In today's episode, we open our Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 22. This chapter takes us to the eastern side of the Jordan River, where the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have settled. They're headed home, and as they prepare to return to their own lands, they erect an altar at the river's edge. But this altar sparks fears of apostasy among the other tribes in the promised land, and poised for war, a delegation is sent to discern their motives before attacking. Have these tribes strayed from worshiping the one true God? Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Monday, October 16th, and you're listening... Pardon me, today's Friday, October 6th, 13th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, I may not know what day it is, but I certainly know who our esteemed guest is. It's the Reverend Robert Paul. He's the associate pastor and a headmaster of Memorial Lutheran Church and School in Houston, Texas. Good morning, Pastor Paul, and welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Excellent. Well, you know, this is the first time I've had you on the show, so I would love if you would just take a few minutes to Share a little bit about yourself and how God's using you and uh, and what your vocation is there at Memorial Lutheran Church. It might be a little different than what people expect. Yes, yes. So uh, I've been here at Memorial since the beginning of the school year of 2017, but ever since I graduated seminary now 10 years ago after a MDiv and STM, I've been a headmaster pastor. So 10 years uh, of serving churches by taking care of the church's school, although I've done lots of church in between. I teach Old Testament Bible class every Sunday here at Memorial. Uh, as a headmaster, I'm essentially a principal, but a pastor fulfilling that role. Um, I take care of our faculty and staff and our students uh, as their pastor and also as an administrator. Uh, we're a classical Lutheran school. I participate by teaching Latin to our seventh and eighth grade students in sort of an honors track and uh, high school theology um, to our uh, high schoolers. We, we graduate our first senior class here uh, in, in May. So uh, very busy, but a lot of fun uh, being part of a vibrant uh, classical, confessional, Lutheran church and school, daily chapel, um, weekly communion. We have uh, all Lutheran faculty and many, many Lutheran confirmed high school students. So it's a great place to teach God's Word and to raise up faithful Christians to be well-educated. Well, it really does sound like it. I was looking at—I mean, you guys are in Houston, so, you know, you have uh, these great resources and a lot of um, a lot of folks there to support the ministry. And so I was looking at your website, a lot of great things going on. Of course, your senior pastor is well-known, good guy. Yes. Looks like all the other pastors are great, too. But I'm just happy to have you on the show today because, well, we're wrapping up Joshua— and we've just, and I'm just going to be honest, we've just finished the slog through all the names and the territories. And, you know, it it was wonderful and a little bit challenging to kind of pull out of all of these allotments of the land, something that applies to us today. But you know what? Today's chapter is really back into the narrative. I think it's going to be a little bit more, I guess, exciting so far as the Bible's uh, uh, storytelling is concerned. Yeah. But it's also really Really interesting story there. There, I, I'm going to title the chapter "Altar," not as an um, 
but as in the alter, alter egos and misunderstood motives, <laughs> because that's what's going on. There's yeah. an alter in play, there are egos in play, and certainly there are motives that are misunderstood. And that's something I know we can apply to ourselves today. But before we get in, would you just lead us in a word of prayer quick, and then we'll hop into the text. Sure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Gracious God, most heavenly Father, we thank you for the Holy Scripture, especially for the book of Joshua, that through men and your Spirit you have given us your word. We ask your blessing upon our study, that we might discern both law and gospel, and receive that which you wish to give us through your word this day. We ask all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, I tell you what, I think because of the length of our text, we might as well just dive right in, unless, of course, you have anything you want to say before we read uh, the first part of our text. No, I, I think I think you're good to start. We can, we can recap once we get to the—you're going to do the first nine to start. Sounds great. Well, I'll do that. So here we go. This will be uh, Joshua chapter 22, beginning with verse 1 from the English Standard Version. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of Yahweh, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of Yahweh your God. And now Yahweh your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of Yahweh, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of Yahweh, commanded you, to love Yahweh your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and cling to him and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. Uh, and so Joshua blessed them, and he sent them away, and they went to their tents. That's the end of verse 6. I think that's probably a good place to stop. So stopping right there at the end of verse 6, uh, you know, take us into the text. There's a little bit more, as you said, till verse 9, but maybe catch us up and, uh, and uh, well, set the stage for where we're going. Sure. So as, as you end up wrapping up, Joshua, this is the first of his so-called farewell sermons. Um, the first being here, and then later on, ones that, that most people at least either know by proof passages or by home decorations, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, <laughs> right? right? Um, so here's the first one, which, as you set us up to deal with the altar of witness later in the chapter, this could come as a bit of irony, since the chapter starts with very clear confession of who right, these two and a half tribes of Israel are. Right? They are God's people. They do what God's people do. Each verse makes it very clear right, that they have kept the word of God, that they have kept his commandment, right? The same word uh, here used uh, for how we understand all of which God gives in the uh, in Leviticus and the commands in Deuteronomy and Numbers. Um, it, it's an extreme sense of irony when you know what's coming, as we're going to go through the whole chapter, uh, that Joshua could say to these people, um, you are, right, well, I always call Old Testament Israel, Old Testament Christians, so you are Old Testament Christians. You know what it means to be an Old Testament Christian. This is what it means to be an Old Testament Christian. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Live according to his ways. Walk according to his word. Um, and 
and they get a very nice speech, right? Old Testament Israel doesn't often get nice speeches from <laughs> Moses and Joshua that's, that's and true. Samuel. <laughs> so, so, to, so to receive sort of like Paul to the Philippians, right, to receive a, a positive letter at the beginning um, is, a, is a blessing for these two and a half tribes, especially knowing uh, who Reuben is historically um, and, and what Manasseh sort of signifies too. We, we, we should revel in the fact that Joshua can speak such faithful words of faithful people. Indeed, absolutely. And uh, let's let's actually add some more verses to our to our text. Let's finish up through nine. Here we go. Um, here we go. Now to the one. Oh, pardon me. I went a little far back on my Bible. Sorry, folks. Here we go. So Joshua blessed them and sent them. Oh, I was right. Here we go. Verse seven. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given possession in Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver and gold and bronze and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, of which they had possessed themselves by the command of Yahweh through Moses. So this sort of finishes up what you're already saying, but I think it, it, it highlights for us that, you know, this idea that we have the Transjordan tribes and they fulfilled the promise that they had made to Moses to fight for their fellows in Canaan when the time came. And they had done that, and that's what we've been looking at. Um, but at the same time, there is really a, a physical division between the two, and I think that's going to come into play. The fact that they just live in physically separate areas, I think, erects a little bit of a, well, a geographical boundary, but also an, a, a sort of an emotional boundary. And I think that's going to that's going to play into what's going to happen next. I, I don't know if you yes. agree with that. Well, I, I think it also it you can draw that theme broader, right? Where um, Israel is always tempted to to think of its geography as definitive as to who Israel is. And that's not always true or ever. Thankfully, true. that's thankfully they no right. longer have that problem over in that region. So that's the good news. Sure. <laughs> that's, sure. that's my sarcasm. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I know. So but but I think that's a very important sort of scriptural truth. Right. That even the, the separation certainly plays into how the, the Cisjordan, right, same side of the Jordan tribes, think of those across the river, those people. Um, but, but there's a clear rebuke of any sort of geographical location, just as the New Testament clarifies it in terms of the language of right, no, no Jew, Greek nor, nor Jew. The, the people of God are defined by who God is and who God makes them not where they live, even if God is intent on where they live, right, in, in Joshua. God is right. purposefully putting them in a locale. He's not scattering them to the four winds. He's giving them Canaan, and he's giving them Gilead and permitting them to live there. But that's a, that's a result of who they are as God's people, not what constitutes them as God's people. 
which is a very important thing for Christians to remember uh, in every age, whether it's historic or, as you alluded to sarcastically, current events, <laughs> that the, the church is who God makes it. And certainly churches exist in locales because they have to, just as God cares about being present in the person of Jesus locally, we have to have a local presence. But that's because of who the church is, not who the church is. And I don't want to allegorize it too much, but at the same time, you know, God gives – and this is a, a lesson we've been learning as we've been going through the division of the land. God gives differing blessings to each. So as they're getting these lands divvied up – and I know the situation was a little different, of course, for these Transjordan tribes. But still, we see that some got really fertile land. Some got right on the coast. Some got um, places where they were more vulnerable. Some, uh, like Judah, got, of course, a lot and, and then, of course, some like Simeon got just spatterings throughout Judah. So, so we see that God gives differing blessings to different people, but it doesn't dictate a, a hierarchy in terms of God's love or care or protection. And we see that today. People get different blessings. You know, I know yes. that there are pastors out there and parishioners who are in tiny little churches that are barely making it, um, and, and God loves them despite their struggles. And then there are some churches who— might have had some pretty wealthy people in their congregation, and therefore they're financially secure, and so they have some better physical blessings, but it certainly doesn't mean that God is less with them. And, and we see that in our individual Christian lives too. So we have to be very careful by using external markers to say, well, God must love those people more, <laughs> or if I'm just yeah. more faithful, he'll love me like he's loving them. Um, and I, I think you're that's one point at least I hear you making. Yes. Are, are you familiar with— um... The Divine Comedy by Dante. By Dante, yes, of course. Yeah. So, so you're bringing to mind um, a reflection that that I remember from Paradiso. So, when when Dante gets into heaven and he's going through the spheres, right, the the ladies who are shoveling moon dust on the moon, being the the furthest out circle of heaven, right? They they don't complain that they're there because they're in the presence of God. It doesn't matter what circle you're in. Right? If you're in heaven, you're in heaven. Now, earth is, is, is not heaven, uh, which, which is why it's a whole lot easier to be tempted to care more about fertile land. and right? why, do, why do I have to live in a, on a top of a mountain that produces nothing and another tribe gets to live somewhere else? But it's a very similar reflection um, that, that God does care uh, differingly, and that doesn't mean right, uh, that doesn't mean that the gift is different to go to Matthew 20 and the workers in the vineyard, right? The gift is the same. Uh, forgiveness of sins, life and salvation is the same, whether you live on the west side of the Jordan or the east side of the Jordan, or whether you're right, in, in a place that's experiencing fall or a place that's, that never changes season, or right, as you said, a small congregation, large congregation, lots of temporal blessings, different kinds of temporal blessings. The, the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation remains the same and should color and fill in how we perceive those blessings. Indeed. And, and you know, I, I'm looking at here in verse 8, and he, and he says to them, Joshua says to these tribes, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing, 
So I, I, this is an indicative of, I guess, the spoils of war or the contraband. They yeah. get. I, I don't know how to describe that, but divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So there's still this emphasis of, you know, you guys have separated yourselves through, and, and there's obviously a complicated narrative behind that, but you're on this one side. But when the time comes, you have to come fight for your brothers, and they do. Now you're taking yeah. spoil back, and he, he doesn't say, like, leave it. He just says, well, now be sure to share that with your brothers. So there's this constant, I guess, uh, impetus that, that the tribes, despite what's going to happen next, the tribes are supposed to take care of one another. God, just like he gathers us together in faith communities and congregations, he's, he's put them in a certain way so that they can be supportive of one another. Um, that's of course in the ideal sin gets in the way, but that's what I see God laying out for them. Yes. Yeah. They're, they are one church even though they are locally separated. Uh, and and the church is to care for, right? The members of the body of Christ pre-incarnation are to care Absolutely. for other members of the body of Christ, whether you're right, talking about Acts and Paul or whether you're talking about Joshua and the tribes. There is a relationship that the, the individual believers in their clans, right, that the congregations in their individual locations have to one another. Let's keep on going, starting with verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Okay, stopping there just for a moment at the end of verse 12, that escalated quickly. I mean, they're heading home, they build this big imposing altar, and the people of Israel go, A, it's on our side, and B, let's go and make war with them. I, I, I mean, I'm being a little facetious, obviously, but... It's like a couple of toddlers. Yes, uh, but if you, there's a little bit of, I don't know if it's going to, if we could call it PTSD, but, but I could understand if, if you are an Israel who remembers Korah and remembers, uh, as we're going to introduce Phineas later, right? And remembers uh, Beth Peor and remembers what life was like before getting into the land um, without knowing what's going on, it, it, right. Them's fighting words. Now, whether it should or shouldn't be, thankfully the Holy spirit and Joshua caused the chapter to go past verse 10. Right. So we have plenty to, <laughs> to go through, but um, you could paint this as sis Jordan, Israel caring for, that which God has handed down through Moses, um, maybe a little bit too zealously, right? Um, preparing for war against people they just sent away with, right? And received, right, received spoils from. They sent them across the river. The altar is finished being constructed. Uh, and, and now right, the, the tone has changed. But um, for God's people to care about God's things isn't always bad. It can go too, too much, um, 
when when they end up not caring right not caring about God's things but about their own um, because they lose sight of of a proper zeal for the things of God. Uh, but I I don't know that I would always question the motive outcomes. <laughs> well, um, motive. I do believe. I agree with you wholeheartedly because I'm being a little facetious. I do believe that in many ways we are witnessing the Israelites' deep concern for, you know, the unity of their faith, the commitment to God's commandments. You know, we int- we're introduced with the idea that Joshua has given them a charge to remain faithful. And I think that introduction is to get us prepared for just the attitude that you're talking about. There is always this concern that the tribes are going to um, astray or apostatize, as as I believe that's what we're going to see ends up being the real misunderstanding. It, I don't yep. think, and, and I'm just sort of leading people in the wrong direction so that the aha moment is greater, but th- I do believe that by the time we find out exactly why they're concerned, then we see that, well, while maybe making war is pretty rough, it absolutely is from a uh, um, a place of the word you use is great zealousness for God and PTSD. I think is the right way to talk about it. You know, they're they're going to be edgy. They're going to be on guard. There's a lot that's been going on. I also think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's an altar in the region of Gilgal, and if they're building near that one, then it could also be not only just sort of a well, to whom is this altar dedicated situation, but also a well, we already have an altar. It's on our side. What are you doing, right? You're building this imposing sure. side that's visible in the Transjordan. The tribes in Cana are looking at it, and they're just thinking, are you trying to upstage the memorial at Gilgal? So I do obviously think there's a lot more to it. Yes. No, certainly. And uh, as as Shiloh right, becomes the place for quite some time and remains right, sort of the prototype for Jerusalem, um, fulfilling the, in a way, fulfilling the words of of uh, Jacob in Genesis uh, forty eight and forty nine. Um, any any site not set up on purpose with all of the information known is going to seem as a threat. Uh, certainly, since uh, conquering the Canaanites involves getting rid of all of their worship sites and their altars and their high places uh, and making the place. Uh, unified around the worship of the one true God. I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit because something you said um, just reminded me of, I don't know, I guess a, a concept that I often think about. So you're right, of course, that God says you are to destroy all of the altars of these false gods. You know, and, and God's concern, and rightly so, was that they would chase after these other gods, that they were intermarry and then delude and not be zealous for the things and commandments of the Lord. And, and and we see that a little bit behind this. How does that apply to us today? I mean, and what I mean is in the literal sense, not in the figurative sense, like how should Christians respond to say the holy sites of those who would set themselves against the one true God? I mean, we have this, I guess, modern ideal of preserving history for the sake of historical purposes and I mean, I certainly would. I mean, I loved going and seeing Machu Picchu and, you know, and uh, all these other sort of places of pagan and false worship. And it's, it's neat to have those in memory. But is there something that like, I don't know, is there almost an imperative for Christians to kind of erase those things, not in a censorship, but in a defense of the Lord? I think you understand where, where what I'm struggling sure. with. 
Yeah, um, hopefully no one listening to this is going to go uh, find the local mosque and burn it down. Yeah, this um, is academic, right. academic discussion. Yeah. Sure. Um, I, I think this is all uh, appropriate because of, um, I'm going to use the word character, but even though he's a real person, because of Phineas, who's going to come and join our conversation, right? Phineas is the epitome of zeal for the Lord. Um, and And whenever I talk about things like this, Right. How should we approach? Um, I'm teaching Ezra on Sundays, and we're almost up to the end of the book, uh, which deals with the sins of intermarriage with unbelievers. Um, and Phineas always comes to mind there, too, because of uh, the plague and how he ends the plague with his zeal. Uh, and in the same way that we don't want to go around destroying Machu Picchu, uh, we also don't want to go around with spears um, and punish people who marry unbelievers uh, in the same way that, that Phineas has. There, there's definitely an import in the call um, to, to being faithful Christians in the public square. Um, I think the discussion of the land allows us to be, fortunately, unfortunately, more allegorical um, than literal. Um, sure. Because the, right, in the literal land of Israel, to live out uh, what God wants, there's there's a literal conquest needs to be done. Um, and, and that is fulfilled in the new Testament by the conquest of all the nations by the word and that the word goes uh, everywhere. And it isn't the call of the church to knock down, um, you know, everything in Rome. In fact, they, they repurpose. Um, Paul says, you, right. You have this unknown God. I'll tell you who the real God is. And he's not necessarily, uh, in the mood to kick the, the, the monument and the statue down. Uh, so there is a way in which certain things can be repurposed, uh, right? Uh, exorcised, cleansed, uh, and used, not in the way that Roman Catholic church has uh, co-opted so many uh, spiritualistic things. Um, but, you know, God take using stone um, and, and using it for holy purposes instead of profane purposes is, is different than, um, mixing paganism with Christianity. Sure. Um, and, and, and I think, just if I can interject, I think in a less dramatic way, I can consider my neighbors. So my next-door neighbors are, um, they are very supportive of the LGBTQ community, and, and in effort of their support, they have hung up uh, right outside my window a very large um, one of those LGBTQ flags. Um, this is a town that's uh, pretty tolerant, but it's it's mostly on the conservative side of those issues, and unfortunately, you know, they posted video on the Facebook the other day of someone in the middle of the night coming up on their property trying to tear down their flag. And so I think as opposed to, say, you know, destroying the Buddhist temple down the road, I think that's where we see this more. Like the zealousness of Christians say – to, and I'm not saying the person who did that was a Christian, but if they were, it wouldn't make it right. And I think that's something no. that's really important that people understand. So that, I would yeah. say, is a symbol of a false religion. And yet, you know, we're not going to get anywhere by sneaking on people's properties and tearing down flags. No, um, but ironically, um, yeah. right, our, our cross-country our cross coach was running around our property uh, just uh, yesterday, and someone had left one of those flags next to our church sign. Oh, so, that's a big difference, yes. Uh, so what did we do, right? We threw it away. Um, of course. Because uh, just just like caring for right, altars in the in 
in locus, right, in locale, like like Joshua uh, describes for us, we too are to preserve and take care of uh, our churches so that there's no compromise on on religion. It's one thing um, without the direct command of the Lord to go around and tear down flags or knock down buildings, or um, uh, it's another thing uh, to to let let others defame. I have to tie us back to Joshua 22 to to do something that might defame or um, or uh, transgress against what God has commanded us to do. Absolutely. I, mean, I think that's an excellent distinction. Um, I tell you what, we're going to think about that distinction while we take a break. So folks, don't go anywhere. Here's some messages. And uh, when we come back, we'll keep on going from Joshua chapter 22. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me this morning is the Reverend Robert Paul. He's an associate pastor and headmaster of Memorial Lutheran Church and School in Houston, Texas. Before we get back to the discussion, dear saints, I'd just like to take this time to thank you for being in God's Word with us this morning. Remember, you can contact me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook at philboo. If you just want to drop a note to say hi, that's okay. Or if you have any questions, I can answer them. But when you do, let me know where you're listening from, how you connect to the show, whether it's over the air, as a podcast, online at kfuo.org, or using the KFUO radio app. Lots of ways to stay connected. I'm just glad that you're here. Now, getting back to the Bible, though, and back to our text, when we last left for break, uh, our guest pastor was talking about the idea that there is um, a time that you must defend, of course, the things of God. And to the outside world, pastor, wouldn't you say that sometimes looks overzealous? The people who are very quick to post on Facebook and complain that say their flag has been desecrated, um, not the same people, but sometimes those same people have no problem about imposing those things on the church as if that's more just. Um, and, and that's something that we also have to defend against. But it's but but there's sort of an eye for an eye. If Christians are all going out ripping up the the signs of candidates they don't like or ripping down the flags of things they don't like, that would really make us no better than those who try to um, dif- disgrace and, uh, and disparage the church. Yes. Well, and unlike the conquest of Canaan, the, the Christian church does not have the command to tear down uh absolutely everything that could possibly disagree with anything the church ever teaches. Right. Um, uh, uh, instead, um, the, the church has both the command to be um, humble and Christ-like 
and also be militant at the same right the paradox of being a militant martyr <laughs> where, right, right. Where, where we have to turn the other cheek uh but we also have to confess Christ no matter what well, when we last left our heroes, they were sending an assembly, or, you know, actually they had assembled to make war against their brothers. So we're going to pick up with 13, see what happens next. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, and every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of Yahweh, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following Yahweh by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against Yahweh? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of Yahweh, that you too must turn away this day from following Yahweh? And if you too rebel against Yahweh today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, Pass over into Yahweh's land, where Yahweh's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against Yahweh, or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of Yahweh our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. It's the end of 20. We're going to get to the response, but... So they go across, and, and I suppose, while I still think they're kind of going in hot and heavy, they didn't just go fight with them. They did go to call them to repentance. But I'm still going to argue that they don't necessarily have any direct evidence that there's need for repentance. This seems like an issue of um, just fear that they're worshiping other gods. But perhaps I'm misunderstanding. Go ahead and take us through this. Yes, I. Uh, uh, in preparing for this, I, I have not really ever had the chance to look at uh, Adolf Harstadt's Joshua commentary for the Concordia series. It's really very excellent uh, and super pastoral, uh, which is pleasant. He he says at the conclusion uh, of the previous section um, that there's a couple of things we should really learn. One, open advanced communication uh, can prevent divisions that result from misunderstandings and false assumptions. <laughs> he, he puts the the blame on Reuben and Gad uh, and half Manasseh and says, right. Interesting. You, it would have, it would have been nice if you just let them know, Hey, our altar is right. As we're going to find out in later verses only for this purpose. And it is not now uh, at our church and school this week, we're up to the eighth commandment in our memory work. Um, and so we can put the, we can put the uh, blame back on the other 10 tribes uh, with the eighth commandment uh, and, Right, they should put the best construction on it, which, for all the reasons that they don't, they don't put the best construction on it. They assume that any altar uh, is going to be an altar in contest, uh, an altar over and against that which already exists at Shiloh, the memorial that exists at Gilgal. They assume um, in generations right, well before 
the the establishment of the the false Yahweh altars of um, Jeroboam, they assume that any altar, um, especially built outside the land, is going to be a false altar. Right? It is interesting that that they they talk about it as as sort of not within the boundaries, um, as if now that you've left Yahweh's place, you're going to do something else. Yeah, I, and that's that's a question I actually have. You know, do does this chapter explain? I didn't see it or anywhere else that you know of why they built it, where they built it. I mean, we're going to learn why they built it, but not necessarily why this location. And I also think it's interesting here that one of their resolutions is come over on our side and take place of the Lord. So, you know, while I understand uh, Dr. Harstead's position, I, I do think there's plenty of sin to go around because, sure. yeah, in light of the Eighth Commandment, but also, you know, I see a little bit of, well, you know, we actually have the real inheritance, and you guys have been over there, and this is really the promised land. And, well, actually, there's some truth to that, too, but should it really be causing the division that it does? Yeah, in, in fact, the, the truth is is inherent in what the altar, right? We're, we'll have to get ahead of ourselves. The altar is a witness. It's a witness to that which is on the other side of the river, which which is actually the, the two and a half tribes saying the exact same thing as the ten tribes, right? They, they, the erection of the altar of witness, so they can see it on the other side, is a testament to the fact that Yahweh is the God of Yahweh's people and of Yahweh's right. land. Um, and and oftentimes, right, this is a great chapter, like you said, for a number of reasons. One, it's not just a list of names and places. I'm teaching Ezra, so I, I feel your pain. I was going to say, right? talk about PTSD. Uh, don't let's... <laughs> <laughs> so, it, but but it is it is a it is an important right. Its historical fact is important, and then what that history, right, the true purpose of history, teaches to us is that misunderstandings do occur amongst the people of God, even when they're caring about the same thing. Even when they're caring about Yahweh's people, Yahweh's things, uh, there is there is room, uh, room is the wrong word, but misunderstandings can happen. Um, now they can be cleared up, which is the beautiful joy of covering the whole chapter in this hour. Right. Uh, but But misunderstandings do happen between people who have the same intention. I'd like to be bold and suggest a analogy in the LCMS, but most churches really, and that is you have two different groups of people who earnestly desire to worship the Lord in spirit and truth and receive his gifts, and they both confess, and yet they then come at each other because their worship services don't look the same. Is there application here? Sure, as long as they're worshiping the same things. Uh, the, there, there's always the fear uh, that that some substances are mingled, but I think um, there's there's great examples throughout our synod where um, there's a desire for a absolute unity in practice, which the confessions don't even ask for, in order to express a unity in belief um, when um, when there's really just a misunderstanding. Yeah, I don't I don't um, all all things being equal, there are. There are plenty of winkles that will be well-served and Bible studies that will be well-served by studying Joshua 22 and seeing how that time in Israel's history 
uh, is very instructive um, for for this time in our history, especially uh, since if you can say the same things about the other congregation, as Joshua says about Reuben and Gad and half Manasseh in the first five verses, then I think we can probably fix the misunderstanding. Right. The, the, I, the contentious part would be, right, can we always say the same thing as the first five verses when we're having these discussions and debates? Of course. Absolutely. Well, let's keep on going. Uh, let's see what happens next with verse 21. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, quote, the mighty one, God, Yahweh, the mighty one, God, Yahweh, he knows, and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against Yahweh, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following Yahweh. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may Yahweh himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, What have you to do with Yahweh, the God of Israel? For Yahweh has made Jordan a boundary between us and you you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in Yahweh. So your children might make our children cease to worship Yahweh. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of Yahweh in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings so your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in Yahweh. And we thought, if this should be said to us or our, to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of Yahweh, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against Yahweh and turn away this day from following Yahweh by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of Yahweh, our God, that stands before his tabernacle. Now, pausing again at the end of 29 right here. So they make it clear, and I guess if I had a hermeneutic of suspicion, I would say maybe they're backtracking because it sounds like they made a, an identical altar. But they're now saying, without any for, you know advanced communication, as Dr. Harstead said, they're now saying, but we were never going to use it for that. It was just sort of a testimony that we are still part of God's people. But they do express their fear, and I think it's fair because we talked about geographical boundaries. They did express their fear that there's going to time to come when they're going to say, well, we're in the real promised land and you're not. And, and, and I think that's a reasonable fear. I definitely see both sides. Yes. Um before we handle that, can we start with, with the, it, it's really significant, the Trinitarian slash creedal. Um, I, I think it helps cover the backtracking because yes, they please. begin, right, by confessing who God is. And they use um, very significant terms, uh, which, which are familiar uh, in, in Hebrew, certainly. But you, you have El Elohim Yahweh. Um, now, they repeat it. Uh, not to say that, right, that the Trinity is really six persons, but but the th fact that the three names of God um, traditionally used in the Old Testament are repeated is is certainly um, a manifestation uh, of of the Old Testament Trinity, just as the "Let us make man in our image," etc. Um, that 
that Yahweh, who is one, um, is also triune. Right? It's not perfect. It's still veiled. Uh, it's not exactly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but, but it is that confession. And it's important that they begin with that confession because they realize that their construction of an altar is really about who God is. Uh, it's not uh, merely about a difference in opinion. It's about who, de- right, who defines them. So they confess the same God that certainly Phineas is going to confess. Um, and to begin there, instead of with the explanation, uh, it, I think is, is a testament to the fact that these tribes do believe in the one true God, and they wish to clear their names as rebels uh, and, and to state that there's no right, – this altar is not meant to also have a tabernacle at some point. They just you know, got caught in the middle of construction, and they only got the first part done. Um, it's, it's meant to be a witness. They are very explicit. Right? They say it over and over and over again, not for burnt offering, not for grain. Um, and you could, I mean, there's always room for cynics um, and for skeptics. Oh, that's but, good. Because I usually am, but no, I, I do believe that they are being. I do believe that they're being straightforward. I think the that whoever wrote Joshua would tell us if there was some deception behind it. Um, I, I do genuinely see Joshua twenty two as well. Just how easily suspicion and a failure to consult with brothers can tear people apart. And um, you know, we're we're hoping we haven't got there yet, but we're hoping that it's going to be a happy outcome. Yes, yes. I mean, it it's. To see the care, right, to see Joshua 22, 1 through 5, illustrated in the response here in, in verses 22 through, through 30, I think is very significant. That Joshua wasn't speaking um, platitudes when he, he described of these tribes, right, that they were, um, that they were those who obeyed my voice regarding all that I commanded you, that they were those who kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, um, that, that they are taking great care to do the commandment and teaching that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. I, it, it is, it's a question why the other tribes didn't assume that. And a good question for us when we're dealing with, with believers and dealing with misunderstandings, uh, what, where should our assumptions go first? Right? If, if we're talking to people who confess the creeds, when we're talking inter-Lutheran, who confess the Book of Concord, um, where should our assumption be first? Audit, it, it often turns out like the verses we just read, where we make ready for war. Yeah, um, I'm afraid so, yeah. And, and, and instead... Um, you know, the, the best construction, and I, I think it goes for sort of all combatants, right? In, in, each, in each example that anecdotally anybody could provide, there's always a 10 tribes and a two and a half tribes. Um, and, and sometimes it's at the same time, right? Where it looks like it from the one side of the river and it looks the same way from the other side of the river. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> well, I tell you what, what, why don't we jump in and just go ahead and finish out the chapter to see how they responded to add it to our conversation. So now with verse 30. 
When Phinehas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas the son of Eleazar the priest said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Manasseh pardon me, Today we know that Yahweh is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against Yahweh. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of Yahweh. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the people of Israel and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel and the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that Yahweh is God. So that ends our text and our chapter for today. You know, I, I love how they go back and it all seems good in their eyes. Um, a couple of things that stand out to me, though, the first of which is their response is, now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of Yahweh. Well, that's presuming that they repented. I, I kind of think it, it seems like it's like we were right, but now that you have said that we were wrong, then you have now done the right thing. I don't know. Maybe I'm being just a little heavy handed with it, but they haven't, if they weren't disgracing or, or blaspheming God in the first place, and there's nothing from which to be delivered. You get what I'm saying? So anyway, I'm not sure, sure how to understand. Sure. Well, I, I think part of it is Phineas, right? He, uh, for, for anyone who, who doesn't have all the backstory, go to Numbers 25, uh, at least. Um, Phineas is a heavy hitter. They didn't, right? yes, he's the son of Eliezer, but, but Phineas is the example of zeal for Yahweh. So if, any, if anyone's going to figure out whether the zeal is the same and appropriate, uh, Phineas could and would. Uh, and, and I think if... Right? It was never the case. But if it were the case that Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh actually were trying to apostatize, then they sent in the right big gun sure. to take care of um, the preaching and teaching and judgment, because that's, that's why you have Phineas around. Right? Um, that's, that's what he stands for. I'm trying to think of other it's, – you know, it's like sending in, – in classical literature, it's like sending o Odysseus. <laughs> right? Right, you right. send him on, on purpose. He he's to do something specific. There are plenty of examples, depending on your, you know, what kind of literature, or movies, or whatever you like. But Phineas is a big gun, um, and he could have been used that way. The Old Testament does does illustrate for us in its language sometimes that Moses and the Lord, um, where where the judgment really is Moses. He, right? There are some ways where the the language is put in on purpose for you to understand um, that if it were the opposite, certainly God would have judged, but it is it, right. Oh yeah. I was just agreeing with you. Cause I think that's exactly what we're seeing here. That if, if this had not turned out, if we had discovered that it was true, then this would have been very bad. So I, I, yeah, I absolutely agree yeah. with that. It would have extended the book of Joshua quite a bit further than you've already done. <laughs> yes, um, it would have. <laughs> At least we'd have gotten another battle in. No, of course, we don't want that. So we're thankful that it ends, which is a really great ending, and that is that the report was good, 
We don't get any, I'm sure there was individual suspicion, but overall everybody trusted their word and, and the people bless God. So they see God's hand, even in this reconciliation, which is also beautiful. And they spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land. So that's the other thing that stood out to me. I mean, again, you could look at this negatively or positively, but just to try to be as neutral as I can, it seems like they'd be tired of war at this point. And so either their zealousness for the for the purity of God's worship was so great that they were willing to continue in battle, even though I'm sure they were tired of it, or mm-hmm. um, they were just ready. They were just used to fighting and ready to fight somebody. I don't know how you look at it, but but still, yeah, I think they, I think yeah, knowing that the zeal of the people of Israel is like the eye of Moses and unabated is an important thing for it for the church of today to remember um, that zeal for God's things, appropriate zeal for God's things, should never be tempered. Now. When it turns into a zeal for our stuff and we're pretending it's God's, we should repent. Right? Yeah. But when but when it is zeal for God's things, uh, that can't be wrong. Uh, sure. Because because those things that belong to God, right? The word in the sacraments, uh, the promises of the scriptures, the commands of God, these these are goods. Good things that that ought to be uh, cared for because God cares for them, right? He is zealous for them, and so God's people should be zealous for them. And that's the first thing. Right? That appropriate zeal should never change, um, but that zeal should produce in the people of God uh, an understanding and uh, a long sufferingness, not to go back to war immediately, but rather to understand our brothers um, and and be able to. Metaphorically, erect a similar altar, a witness that the Lord is Yahweh, right? God is the Lord. The same Yahweh who delivered them into the promised land is the same Yahweh they confess, even though they are, quote-unquote, outside of the promised land. Well, I think that's actually where we're going to have to leave it because we're here at the end of the program, but it's a good word to leave it on, right? The focus should be on God, and the unity of his people is uh, reliant upon us being unified under Uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Robert Paul. He's an associate pastor and the headmaster of Memorial Lutheran Church and School in Houston, Texas. Pastor, thanks so much for being on the show. I hope you come on again. My pleasure. I'd be happy to do it whenever you'd like. Excellent. Folks, on Monday, we open the Bible again to Joshua, but on first, I'm sorry, chapter 23, the uh, penultimate chapter. And we find the aging leader, Joshua, gathered, uh, gathered, (laughs) gathering, Oh, goodness, folks, gathering the Israelites at Shechem, the sacred ground of their forefathers' covenant with God. Now Canaan's conquered, and Joshua's going to start imparting his final counsel, emphasizing the crucial balance of faith and obedience and urging the people to remain steadfast in their covenant with the Almighty. That's what we're going to talk about. So come and join us on Monday. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. 